are in business. I'm sorry about that, guys. There. I won't make us listen to the music anymore, so the kids, are, the kids have made their way out. Um, so yeah, as we start this morning, uh, like Luke said, we're starting a, a new series, and we're calling it Living as a, a Remnant. So I don't know if you guys, uh, I don't know, if you find that you struggle, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you struggle sometimes to live faithfully. I mean, like, if I'm being honest, I sometimes struggle with that, to live faithfully, right? And we, uh, you know, like, and, and I assume that for many of you, that is the same, that there are times and seasons where it just feels like it is so hard to follow Jesus in our, in our, in our lives, right? And maybe, maybe for you, you even struggle to understand what it means even to practice the Christian faith. Like, what does it actually mean to be a follower of Jesus? And if that's you, hey, I just want to say, there is no shame in that. Like, honestly, there is no shame in that. There's no, like, that's okay. And in fact, that's the whole reason that Luke and, and Nick and I decided to, to do this series. It's because we know, like, we feel that pressure ourselves sometimes, that, that disconnect or, or, or just the, the tension there. And so the whole point of this series is for those of us who feel that tension of following Jesus in a world that is seemingly very far from Jesus. How do we do it better? How do we become more consistent, more faithful followers of Jesus? Who aren't just like people who only do what Jesus says, but actually know Jesus. And so this morning, that's what we're going to focus on, is the idea of knowing uh, Jesus. But before we get there, I think we have to kind of unpack this idea of, of a remnant or, or of exile. Okay, so the idea of like living as a remnant. We could have said living as exiles, but that just seems a lot more negative. I don't know. I felt like to take the positive of it, like we want to live as a remnant in the world. Okay, we want to live as people uh, in a remnant. So I think it's just, it'll be helpful for us to begin to kind of unpack this idea of like, what kind of moment are, are we in? To just, to just name it, to identify it, so that then we can start to work through the idea of what does it look like then to live faithfully as a remnant in this moment. I think one of the things that, that for those of us who, who live in Ireland, like we know, is that Ireland is increasingly becoming more and more secular and more and more pluralistic. Right? There was once a time where Ireland was not like that. <laughs> I don't remember that time because I've only lived here for 12 years. Right? But I assume there are some of you in the room who remember that time. Right? And I'm not here to, to say good, bad, or to talk about all of those things. Again, I didn't live through it. But I think there was a time, right? and even where I grew up, there was a time <laughs> where the Christian faith had pride of place. Where everybody, at least to some degree, agreed that Christian morality or something like it was a good thing for society. But we don't live in that time anymore, do we? Not really. For the most part, that time is gone. And so what's happened is that the identity as, as a Christian, it's almost become eroded. It's become marginalized. And so we now experience faith, I think, in, a, in an interesting way. How many of you guys have ever eaten at a buffet? 
that like a thing? Like, okay, most of us have, have at some point, or we at least have in our minds a, a, what, what a buffet is. Maybe we could even think like a la carte or something like that. Um, you know, like, like that sort of thing, right? And here's the thing about buffets. Like if you've never eaten at one, like, right, okay, and we can all probably, maybe some of you are like, oh, man, I love a good buffet, right? And a good buffet is one thing. I'm not a huge fan, but like in, in general, um, but, but maybe you can think of a good buffet. But if you are a buffet connoisseur, then you know most buffets are not good ones, right? <laughs> the food is at best, at best, mediocre, and probably somewhat cold, which might lead to food poisoning. Right? Like, it's just, it's one of those, and if nothing else, what we know about a buffet, right, is that oftentimes it's got a variety of different things. And I remember, like, going to a buffet with a friend of mine and his, his dad, and anytime we ever, because I, I worked for him, and anytime we ever stopped at these buffets that he liked to go to, as soon as we walked out, the first thing that he would do is he would take heartburn medicine, <laughs> <laughs> and, and some sort of like, you know, digest, you know, like sort of like digestion, like medicine, you know, indigestion sort of things because he was like, here it comes, you know, it's one of those things. Like if you have to do that, that's not a good thing, right? But you take all of this kind of stuff thinking like, oh, this will be good. This will be good. This will be good. None of it's really that good. And in the end, you just feel sick. I think that's the cultural moment that we live in. Okay. That's the cultural moment that we live in, right? It is a, a mediocre buffet of individualistic spirituality. And I'm not the only one who says this, right? Okay, we could, if you want, like I, I could just go, you know, well, Tom Inglis, a sociologist at the UCD, right? Okay, so he calls it a la carte spirituality in, in Ireland. Okay, so I didn't make it up, really, is what I'm saying. There are people smarter than me um, that have come up with this idea, but I think, it's, I think it's a reality. A mediocre buffet of individualized spirituality. All right, so let's sit with that metaphor for a moment, because we now experience, I think, faith at a spiritual buffet, right? There is the, you know, the mashed potatoes of mindfulness and the, uh, the meatballs made of who knows what, of, yeah. of some sort of like, you know, I, I don't know, new age spirituality. And uh, maybe with that, we'll, we'll take on some sort of Buddhist bowls and uh, yoga and like, you know, and, and you can name your own, your own foods there um, and what those are like. And, and then what we find then is in our cultural moment that kind of sitting over in the corner in a warmer somewhere is what people view as Christianity. They say, oh yeah, well, that's kind of over there. Nobody really wants to eat that anyway. Maybe for you, it's the salad bar. You know, I, I don't know, but like, you know, like, and it's kind of tucked over there in the corner and like, and, it, and it's sort of really what it all boils down to. What we end up with is all of these spiritual foods that compete for a spot on our plate. Right? And your plate's only so big. And so many of us, the way that, that, that our culture works is like, it's kind of one of those like, hey, you go to the buffet, and if you want that, scoop it onto your plate. If you want that, scoop it onto your plate. And if you want some of that, scoop it onto your plate. And then we walk away thinking, oh, we've got a great meal. But really, in the end, we just end up like my friend's dad with heartburn. Okay? The new foods at these buffets, I believe, are predictably bland, not that great, and they don't satisfy. We might be full for a moment, but then we walk away sick. And really, ultimately, what all of these spiritualities at the buffet they, they all pretty much have the same message. This is why, in our culture, we can say things like, all roads lead up the same mountain. 
right? We can say things like, everything leads to God, it's all fine, do whatever you want. Because really what all of these spiritualities boil down to, and what, what the, the sort of individualized spirituality in our culture boils down to, is sort of like, take what you want, make your own faith, be a good person, and uh, you know, let, live and let live. Let everybody kind of just do what they want. You be a good person. Don't offend anybody. Don't hurt anybody. Don't, mess, don't say anything against anybody. And, and we're all good. Right? I mean, do we feel that? Do we understand that? Like, are you with me on this? Like, right? Like, I feel like, I don't know. Like, it just kind of seems to be, anecdotally, the way things are. And so instead of, of doing what we know is, is better, right? So for the buffet goers, it seems silly to simply order one entree, which will actually come out hot and taste good and not give us heartburn, when there's a whole buffet of food that we could take from. We could mix and match a bunch of mediocre ones. And so Jesus' claim to be the kind of exclusive way to the Father, right? Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, it's not just a, a, you know, a, a warming piece in, this, in, the, in the buffet. It is an unwelcome piece in the buffet. And maybe we feel that now. It's, it's no longer being put out <laughs> for people. Instead, it's being kept in the back and nobody should have it because it's shameful. And so what we find, and maybe again you feel this, is people feeling like these claims of Jesus sound oppressive or they sound arrogant. And there's this ever-growing plurality of voices, whether that be on social media, whether that be in our newspapers, whether that be in our, the halls of our political assemblies, or whether that just be in the pub <laughs> on a Wednesday night we find this ever-growing plurality of voices that at best marginalize the Christian faith and at worst show total and complete disdain for it. Now, I understand there's background to everybody's complaints, right, or disdain or, or things like that, but ultimately I think just in the end that's where we end up with. And so the voice of faith is marginalized, which means that we find ourselves, maybe you find this too, we can be tempted to find ourselves feeling more apologetic than proud of our Christian faith. Maybe you've been there in those moments where you felt that, where like you almost just kind of shrink away, like, whoa, whoa, you know, like, and you know what? Let's be honest, the church in Ireland has, and, and not just in Ireland, like the church in many places has done some very shameful things and stood up for very shameful things that they should have never. Right? Okay, so I think we can hold up our hands and recognize that. But also recognize, I think even if those things hadn't happened, our world was already moving in this direction anyway. And so now we find ourselves sometimes feeling more apologetic than proud for being a Christian. And so we know and we feel the reality that Christian voices, like our own, have been relegated to the margins. So what do we do? Right? What do we do? Okay, and I think um, this is where we're at, right? And let's be honest, too. As Christians, we are not exempt from the tempting allure of the buffet. And I think that's important. Let's not just say, all of those people out there, they eat from the buffet, but not me, right? We're all tempted by that. 
We are all tempted by it. We're naturally comfortable to shift metaphors with the cultural air that we breathe. We've been radically affected by it. We can't say that we haven't been affected by it. We have been. It influences who we are. The cultural air that we breathe or the, or the water that we swim in, it shapes us just like it shapes everybody else. And if we're not intentional about it, it will shape us into who it wants us to be. And this is the important thing. As we're talking about this, a lot of this idea of living as a remnant really is about spiritual formation. Who am I becoming? What am I allowing to form my spirit? Because if you're not intentional about this, and here's what I'm saying, one, one, sun, you know, one hour and 15 minutes or 20 minutes, however long church services, one hour and 20 minutes or something like that is not enough to fight the absolute cultural sea that is like engulfing us on a daily basis. So an hour and 20 minutes a week, and maybe you're a part of community group, so two hours and 20 minutes a week will not be enough. We need more than that. We need to be intentionally forming our spirit because the reality is something is forming you. It's just a matter of whether you're intentional about what it is or not. Right? You think about all the advertising, all the media, all the speeches and music and everything in our world. It is telling you something. It is speaking to you. It is trying to form you into someone or something. Okay, and so we need to be intentional about this. Because otherwise we run the risk of letting our faith become just another thing we consume in a long list of purchases or a long list of things at the buffet that we put on our plate that we hope will make up a meaningful life. And at the buffet of ideas, a meaningful life is actually a lot harder to find than we think it is. And I think that's what many people are feeling. Maybe that's why you're here. I don't know. I think many of us feel that, that maybe we've tried that and you go, oh, actually, a meaningful life is really hard to find because guess what? When you start throwing all that stuff on your plate, cognitive dissonance is going to happen all over the place, right? You're going to hold this belief and this belief. They actually don't fit or work with each other. I'm just too busy to even think about it or consider it, right? You know, somehow a taco and mash, you know, and, and, uh, and carvery don't go well together, you know, or whatever, like, you know, that sort of thing. And so, summarizing Rick McKinley in that book that Luke recommended, Faith for This Moment, to summarize something he says in there, he says the great, there's something like, the greatest threat that we face is that we would float down the stream of culture, uh, the stream culturally, of, sorry, I can't read. The stream of culture blissfully unaware that it is shaping our identity more powerfully than our faith in Jesus does. Okay, just a couple of last notes on this and we'll keep moving. So, many of you know, I've got two twin girls that are wonderful and amazing in the back and at the moment, reasonably quiet. Right? But they have three brothers who are upstairs and they are anything but quiet, if you know them. So at our house for nap time, we do something like we put on like white noise. It's actually the sound of a hoover. And sometimes I don't even hear it anymore. You know, it's just a you know, like all the time, constantly. But you know what? It drowns out the voice of the boys. <laughs> it drowns out their noise so that the girls can take a nap. Right? 
And, and I think for many of us, Jesus and his gospel can easily become drowned out by the white noise of everyday life. The white noise of buying more stuff, of making more money, of consuming more information, of watching more entertainment, of binge-watching this and reading all of these, you know, random blogs that really have nothing, you know, or, or, or you know, I don't know, whatever it is, the information that you consume. Um, and so we have to be intentional. So then what are our options? Well, I think we're left with a couple of options. The first option is acceptance. Okay, the first option is just to say, and this is a, this is a direction that, um, unfortunately, I think a lot of churches take, is to say, you know what, it's fine. Maybe they're right. Maybe all roads do lead to the mountain. Maybe being a piece of the buffet is pretty much okay. And we'll just, again, we'll, we'll go ahead and just say that the message of Jesus really is just about being nice to people, being a good person, and living and letting live. Right? And so this, this kind of total acceptance that just says like, hey, do you know what? We'll go along with the culture. We'll go along with things because, hey, if we don't, people might not come. Or whatever the reason may be. Right? The other, the other option is, is denial. We can pretend it doesn't happen. We can just close up and like, you know, kind of enclose in, into ourselves and stay away from everybody because, oh, who knows? You know, like everybody's bad. Everybody's evil. Oh, like, you know, I don't know what's, you know. And, and we turn into like little hermits, you know, not long ago, you know, like St. Kevin out in Glendalock. We just go up on, onto a mountainside by ourselves and we live in a cave. And every time we have an impure thought, we jump into a thorn bush. I mean, that's what he did, but I wouldn't recommend it. But, um, but just to say, this sort of like the other reaction is the opposite of like, we must stay away from everybody and everything and all of that and, and despair. Like our culture's going to hell in a handbasket and we're screwed, we're everybody's screwed, you know, that sort of thing. But I actually think there's a third way. And it's hope. The third way is hope. Hope that Jesus is actually still king over all things. That Jesus is working in his world for our good and for the good of creation. Hope that we are a part of a new kingdom that is actually the original kingdom <laughs> and that we can experience life abundantly in the kingdom. Hope that Jesus will return and set all things right and make all things new. And this hope, this hope is what drives this series. I want for you and for me to live as people of hope. Not as people of just pure acceptance that just will just go along with it or despair. But as people of hope, believing that Jesus is alive and that changes everything for you and for me. And so is there anything in scripture that can help us then to identify who we are and where we are as Christians in this moment and to live as people of hope? The answer is yes. Of course. Probably could have guessed that. <laughs> no. And I'll just walk away. No. Yeah, the answer is yes. Absolutely. Okay. There is a way of living by faith that allows us to be distinct in our world, that allows us to be transformed by Jesus, and allows us to be a blessing to all people as we announce the good news that Jesus is King, Lord of all.
And that is the way of exile. Okay? That is the, the language of exile or of living as a remnant. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter starts off by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, that's basically just modern-day Turkey, kind of northern Turkey, uh, along the, uh, the Black Sea. Okay, and he writes to these people, and he says, he calls them elect exiles. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. One, these people, most of them, have lived where they are their entire lives. But yet he refers to them as exiles, right? Like, that's weird, okay? Why are they exiles? Because these are people who have lived in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, their entire lives. They are born and raised there. Their families are there. Their friends are there. Their jobs and careers are there. But they've decided to follow Jesus. Most of the trade guilds at that time would have revolved around the worship of, of one deity or another. Most community life in a village or in a town would have revolved around the worship of deities. And much of the family life would have revolved around the worship of deities. There would have been idols in the home. There would have been prayers made, feasts had. And now, these people that Peter is writing to are no longer able to participate in those things because they follow Jesus. Are you with me? Like they feel exile. They feel like strangers and foreigners in a land that is familiar. And, and for many of us, that's the reality. I know a lot of us are immigrants in here. Like, okay, so in that way, maybe we get it. But like, but at the same time, for those of us who aren't, like, do you know what I mean? Like, the, the, they feel that tension of no longer being at home while being at home. Their families don't look at them the same. They may have lost their careers because they're not willing to, to worship an idol. Their communities, when family life, when community life is centered around the feasts to other gods, and they go, no thanks, I can't participate in that. They feel that tension. They are living in exile. Exile, this motif, and it is, it is a theme throughout Scripture. From, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Jesus and to Peter and to Revelation, it is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. And it is a theme in Scripture that is both a historical reality, right? It is something that happened physically, literally to the Jewish people. But it is also a metaphor that is used by the New Testament writers, like Peter, to help Christians to understand how to faithfully follow Jesus in inhospitable times and places. Now, I'm about to give you the most brief biblical theology of exile that has maybe ever come out, like, possible, that I can do anyway. We know I struggle with being concise. I'm going to give you the absolute shortest one I can do on what is exile, okay? So we're just going to unpack that really quickly in the Bible. There are three, three key words that are really important. People, place, and presence. Three Ps. I didn't, I, again, I didn't make that one up, people, place, and presence. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I thought that was really helpful. 
And here's why, okay? Because it'll help us to unpack this really quickly. Genesis chapter one and two. God creates a garden, a place. And in that garden, he makes a people, right? Adam and Eve. And those people are to live in relationship with God in his presence. All three things, okay? You've got Adam and Eve, people, in a garden, place, walking and talking with God in his presence. That's what you and I were created for. That's who you and I were meant to be. We were created to be a people who walk and talk with God and live with him. Okay? People, place, and presence. Genesis chapter 3 comes along. Human beings choose another way. They choose not to trust God, to reject him, and instead to believe the lie of the serpent. And thus, God curses them and sends them into exile out of the garden, away from the place, and the presence changes. God still takes care of them. He still looks after them, but, but things are not the same. That presence is not the same. They are not walking and talking with God in the same way. All of that is disrupted. And God, in that way, no longer has a people because they've rejected him and they've walked away. In Genesis 1 to 11, right? We've talked about this. It is that moving east of Eden, and it is not a gradual walk. It is a sprint as fast as human, humanly possible away from the Garden of Eden. And we get to Abraham. And at Abraham, God comes to him and he says, I am going to make you a people, a great nation, and your people will be more than the stars in the sky. There's the, uh, the reason we had the stars in the sky there on our uh, thing. Right, the promise to Abraham. I am going to make you a people. And I'm going to give you a place, he tells them. He says, look at this. This land, this is going to be yours. It's not, not right now, but it will be. And there, he says, my presence will dwell. People, place, and presence are promised to Abraham. Yet, Hebrews says that they wandered as strangers in a land. And as people, one of our deepest... <laughs> needs, I think, is to be known. And here they are wandering as strangers, as exiles, but carrying a promise. And we see then in Egypt, right, the people are brought out of Egypt. The people of Israel have become a nation. Abraham's descendants have become a, an enormous group of people, so much so that they threaten Egypt and they begin by killing firstborn sons and all that sort of thing, right? You, you get like, they're killing all the baby, you know, the baby boys in, in Egypt. And God says, enough, right? And he brings about the exodus and he allows the people to come out of the land to be set free and into the wilderness. And there at Mount Horeb, uh, sorry, Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with his people and he says, you are my people. And at that moment, a covenant is made. God now has a people. And then he says, I'm going to give you a land. And you're going to, you're going to get it. A promised land. He promises a place. And there I will dwell with you. And they build a tabernacle, and God's presence is there with his people, presence. Short story, the people rebel. And they end up in the wilderness for 40 years. They don't have a place, but they do have God's presence still. 
because God is gracious and they are God's people. But then 40 years later, God gives them the land, right? And once again, people, place, and presence. There it is. We have it. Maybe not in its fullness, but hey, it is there. But the people of Israel never seem to actually completely give themselves to God. And so the prophets come along and they are constantly, if you've ever read the prophets, they are constantly like, guys, stop it. God, in his mercy, over and over sends the prophets to say, guys, turn to me. And you could perfectly, you could have my presence. You can have the place. You, like, you will be, you are my people. I love you. And if you don't obey, I'm going to send you into exile. Because this, this matters. How you treat other people matters. How you love me matters. Not worshiping other gods, those matter. And yet the people constantly ignore. And so what happens? After hundreds of years of God's patience, off to Babylon. And they are exiled. But God brings them back. He brings them back from exile. Back into the land. God's people. They're not really back in the land because, well, again, now historically we've jumped, we've jumped forward quite a, quite a bit. We're making huge leaps here. But the Persians are the ones who let them go back. They're not really free. The Persians are still ruling them, and the land really still belongs to Persia. And so the people are back in a land that's not really theirs. And God's presence, even though they build the temple, God's presence, if you read Ezekiel, you see that God's presence leaves, and one of the things that you find is that there is no mention after that of God's presence coming back into the temple in the same way it did in the time of Solomon. And so God's presence is not the same. But what has happened is people have begun to say, we want to be the people that God wants us to be. And that started to happen. And then Jesus is born, right? Okay, <laughs> now we're at Jesus. All right, and what we find is that Jesus comes and he restores people, place, and presence. Jesus comes and brings his presence, right? And through his death and resurrection, he promises who? The Holy Spirit. The presence is back. Place. What's the place? Well, you're sitting in it. <laughs> in a way, every church is an outpost of God's place, right? We are to live as God's people. And as a church, we are an outpost of God's place. But it is not fully here yet, and we know that, and we'll get into that's the tension that we feel as people now, why Peter can use that language of us being exiles still, is that though Jesus has won the victory, his fullness is not yet completely here over the earth. And so we get to experience, we get to be God's people, we get to experience his presence, and in a way we get to experience his place, but not in the same way as when Jesus comes in his fullness. And so we still live as a remnant, as a small group of people that are live faithfully for Jesus. I told you I would do it as quick as I can. There we go, all right? There's a lot more to that. And if you wanna go, if you wanna take the deep dive, I am, I'd love to do that with you. But we're not gonna do that this morning, all right? Or at least not during the sermon. <laughs> but what we find with exile 
is that we were made to be God's people in God's place and in God's presence. And now what we find is this idea of living in exile, it is a place of loss. I just think we need to name that. Like in a way, it is a place of loss. And here's what I mean by that. When we choose to follow Jesus and we become a remnant living in exile, just like the people that Peter is writing to, we become foreigners in our own land. Jesus calls us to give up many of the things that, that we did before. People we've known our whole lives may look at us like we are crazy. Maybe even our own family. You know, Jesus <laughs> talks about like, how people will lose their families even for following him, right? It is a place of loss, and I think we need to name that. But it is not just a place of loss, it is a place of hope. The hope that we are giving up a way of life that actually doesn't satisfy. The hope that, that we are coming to the one who offers living water. Like Jesus with the woman at the well, he offers us living water. We live in that hope. The hope of a life with Jesus, of life to the full. A hope of the fullness of people, place, and presence. And so we live as a faithful remnant of God's people in Babylon. Now, I would love to unpack again the theme of Babylon. But here's the short one-sentence version. The way the Bible uses Babylon after the exile, okay? Because Babylon is where the Israelites went, or you know, the people of Judah went after the, you know, that's where they went into exile. The Bible picks up on this, and Babylon becomes a place synonymous with the powers of this world. Right? So when you read Revelation... It talks about Babylon. Even Peter, he's going to say, those in Babylon <laughs> greet you. Is he in Babylon? No, he's probably in Rome. <laughs> but he uses Babylon. Babylon becomes a key word to speak about the systems and the powers of this world that control so much of what goes on in our world, whether that be the information, the military, the you know, that's... Okay? And so we become a remnant of God's people in Babylon. You and I, though we live in Ireland, live in Babylon. And if we want to live then as a remnant, if we want to live as resilient disciples, it starts with knowing Jesus. And here's where we're going to spend just our last few minutes together. So we've unpacked this idea of maybe, I hope, of our cultural moment, of, of where we are in the world at the moment, and how this theme of exile actually comes together and, and kind of slots really nicely, <laughs> just like Peter uses it here. And I think, again, like it, it fits. It works really nicely. It comes together in helping us to understand the world that we're in and how we are to be in the world. We're to live as faithful people, right? So 1 Peter, in, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, you really get a summary of 1 Peter, and he says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, that could be also be exiles, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. That is how we are to live as exiles in our world. But let's not fool ourselves and think that it's easy. Because it is not. It is not easy to live that way. So how do we do it? 
It starts with knowing Jesus. And so the first thing is, is that we need to know Jesus and not just know about Jesus. And that is an important distinction. There is a difference between information and transformation. Guys, we live in I get the information age, right? We have the information superhighway. All these things, right? Like we have, we have, please, I noticed how dumb that is. That sounds, okay? Uh, I was on purpose. Um, but information is not going to be our problem, right? We can Google and get a thousand answers to everything. Now, most of them won't be good, but we can get a thousand answers, right? I mean, information is not going to be our problem. You want to know about Jesus? Boy, there are millions, and that's not even hyperbole, there are millions of books written about Jesus. And I can probably recommend a couple thousand to you, right? <laughs> but there is a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. And guys, this is like, if you get nothing else from this sermon, I hope you get that. Because as a church, we want you to not just know about Jesus, we want you to know Jesus. And guys, the heart of this sermon series goes back a couple of years. I was not in a great place, if I'm being honest. I knew a lot about Jesus. But spiritually, I wasn't in a great place. And again, it's not that I didn't know Jesus to a degree. It's not that, but what I found myself hungering for was to know him more. I found myself going, I've been a Christian for a long time. I'm a pastor, and yet I still feel like I don't know Jesus in the way that I want to. I'm not experiencing Jesus in the way that I want to. Like, I don't want to just, like, come in, go through the motions, be a good person, do my, like, that thing, and maybe once in a while, you know, like, have a really good moment in prayer where, like, I, you know, like, it's like, no, I want to know Jesus. Really know him. And that started me down a journey of going, man, because I'm not a person that like habits come, I mean, maybe bad habits come easy, but like intentionally doing the right thing <laughs> sometimes doesn't come easy to me. You know, like things that I should do, like eating healthy, exercising and all of that. Thankfully, I have a wonderful wife. All right? Because like those kinds of habits don't come easy to me. Those things that are good for me don't always come easy to me as habits, Right? And I needed to take hold of that and to intentionally begin to make changes in my life so that I could know Jesus. And thankfully, Luke came along with me on that, and our families have come along with us. And, and guys, like, like, I'm in such a better place than I was a couple of years ago. And I want that for you too. I hope that that is your hunger. That is your desire as well. Is that you maybe feel that, where you go like, yeah, okay, I've been a Christian. I know Jesus to a degree, but I'm not satisfied with where I'm at. So what are just a couple of things? And, and you know what? We're just going to go through a couple of things. Like it's four things. But these four things, if you actually did them on a regular basis, would change your life. I'm not joking. Like that is not a joke. Like it would change your life. I know because I've been there. It's changed my life. All right, and so we're going to walk through those. But first we're going to read 1 Peter 2, verse 21, because I think it helps set us up for this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says this, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. So if we want to know Jesus, here's the first thing I think Peter is telling us. Follow his example. Now, 
That's a really fun Greek word. You know, we don't normally sit up here and always like be like, oh, let's look at the Greek, okay? Um, though I think it's interesting, okay? But the word underneath that Greek word example is hupogramos. Again, that means nothing to you. It meant nothing really to me until you start to unpack the word and you find out, right? If you have small children and they are learning how to write, what do they get at school? They get a book that they can trace that starts to help them to form their letters, okay? The word hupogramos, at its most basic, is a copybook. That's what it means. It is a copybook meant to help kids to learn their letters. And so really what Peter is saying here, an example works fine, that's, that's true, but I think a better way to say it is that you and I are to trace Christ. That we look at his actions, at who he was, at who he is, and we trace that. We begin to draw the lines along with Jesus in our lives. That is step one. Jesus says, follow me. And so we trace Christ. So what did Jesus do then in order to remain connected to the Father? And this is important. Like, guys, the Gospels, part of the beauty of the Gospels is that they're biographies, right? And what is the purpose of a biography? You, lead, you, you do read to see, like, hey, if you want to be like that person, if it's somebody you admire, you go, hey, I want to be like that person. Do you know what? They, uh, they, they ate every day at 5 in the morning. They had their breakfast. So you start having your breakfast at 5 in the morning, right? Because you're like, oh, I'm going to be just like that, right? It's, it's one of those, like, biographies sometimes work as, like, a way of imitation. Like, they help us to know those people who are successful or that I look up to. This is how they lived their lives. And so, so, like, I think looking at the gospel sometimes in that same way to say, how did Jesus live his life? If I want to be like Jesus, if I want to know Jesus, maybe I should start there. And so a couple of things that we see of Jesus and how he remained connected to the Father. And so this will form a, uh, um, you know, I'm not great at alliteration, so I was like, I guess it's, uh, if you really want to like, try and remember it, I don't know, like, you know, like, um, <laughs> so again, not alliteration, but it is like, but prayer, okay? Prayer is the first part of, Sorry, I'm just going to stop. Like, that could probably go in directions that aren't healthy. I'm going to stop there. Um, prayer, it's a daily practice that centers us and connects us to Christ. Guys, I cannot underestimate the importance of prayer. I wish I could say I was the world's greatest prayer. I'm not. But I also know I need to spend time connected to the Father. And so do you. I need to spend time connected to Jesus. I love how the New Living Translation translates Psalm 27.8. And it's kind of become right here in a bookmark because it's, it's something I, I remember. And my wife has wonderful handwriting and she made this for me. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. That is the heart of prayer right there. We hear God say to us, come and talk to me. And our heart responds, Lord, I am coming. It doesn't say, 
my heart has heard you say, come talk at me. Come and talk <coughs> with me. And so prayer is an invitation into the heart of God to know him, to know who he is, to talk with him, to commune with him, to share with him. Read the Psalms. Nothing is off limits. That's one thing I learned from the Psalms. When it comes to prayer, nothing is off limits, guys. <laughs> the Psalms will make you uncomfortable, right? Until you're in that moment where you feel the same way as the psalmist, and then you're like, you know, you're right there with him. But when you're reading it in other times, like you read that and you go, whoo, I don't know if he can, can he say that? Right? Prayer is a daily practice that centers us and connects us to Christ. And you and I need to be people of prayer. Okay, and here soon, like, Sam, give me the date. 21st of October. Okay. Sorry, Sam. Um, the 21st of October is something we're going to start like praying as a church together in this room. And you are welcome to come. We'd love for you to come. 1 p.m., right? 2 p.m. Blake says 2 p.m. So 2 p.m. on the 21st of October. And we're going to start a rhythm in our church once a month. We're going to gather together and we're going to pray. We're going to pray for the church. We're going to pray for people. And look, I don't know, some of you have joined in on the 40 days of prayer, which just ended yesterday, right? And now it's turned into 80 days of prayer, which, hey, that's not a bad thing. Maybe not biblical, but, you know, 40 days. I'm, I'm kidding. Um, but, like, right? Prayer is important. And it's important to do by ourselves, but it's also important to do in community. All right? So let's move on to the next one, silence and solitude. You and I live with noise in our pocket. I mean constant noise in our pocket, right? Algorithms are designed to hit you with a notification just at the right moments when you are most likely to look at it. People who are smarter than you and I literally make their money off how to convince you to look at your phone. I, that's just, I mean, that sounds cynical, and it is, but it's also true. There are people who, that is their job. And so you have had that moment if you're somebody who prays, who's deep in prayer, and ding, there goes your phone. And then it's gone. It's over. Because you're like, I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to keep praying. I wonder what it said. Who is it from? Why would they text me at this time? Maybe it's important. Did a relative die? Did, you know, like, and like your mind is like, you're like that, at that point, you're like, I have to look at it. And then it's like, and then it's over, right? That moment you had in prayer is over, right? We've all been there. Or you're like, you know what? Reading my Bible. Here we go. And then it's like, oh yeah, Scotland was playing Romania. I know it's going to be a bloodbath, but I wonder what it was. I wonder what the score is. Not that that's biographical at all. Um, right? And then, like, you know, it's 90-something to zero. But, but like, or 80-something, I don't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But like, right? So it, it's one of those, like, we constantly have access to our phones. Constant noise and distraction is at our fingertips, constantly calling to us, and we need time to shut it off. Put it away. I mean, most of us are of the generation, nearly, that remembers a time when this didn't exist. Because it was, what, 2007? No, 2009. 2009? 2007 or 2009. So I know some of you are fairly young in here, but not that young, right? Well, maybe you are. I don't know. But anyway, the world changed. Okay? We remember there was a time where you, like, people actually had to call your home phone 
and you didn't have to answer it. <laughs> People had to call your home phone and leave a message, and you could play your message, you know, like, right? And if you weren't home, you weren't home. That's gone. Because we need time to put it away, to disconnect from the chaos of our modern digital age, and to refocus and reconnect with God. That's why silence and solitude is important. But it's also why silence and solitude is so stupidly hard. <laughs> because we live in a world of noise, constant noise. And so to actually put it away and to sit down becomes really hard. We're addicted to it. We need it. We're used to it. And when all of a sudden I'm alone with my thoughts, that's a really scary place, right? Because in the digital age, anytime I start to think about something I'm uncomfortable with or I don't like, I'm starting to do some self-introspection about myself, then all of a sudden I can go, hmm, you know, what's Donald Trump done today? Right? You know, like, <laughs> like any number of things I can go to and find it, you know, like, like there's a thousand things that I can then distract myself with. We need the time to disconnect. And it is in those times sometimes, and I, I think prayer and silence and solitude are connected with one another. For me, those are two things I do together. And I'm not saying it has to be hours. Because we probably can't start with hours. Like, that's a bad idea to try and start with hours of silence and solitude. I'm an extrovert. I would go insane. Right? I would go completely insane. Although sometimes I think maybe hours would be nice, um, even though I'm an extrovert. But, like, starting with just a few minutes of silence and solitude along with our prayer time. And it's that time to say, you know what, God? I'm just here to listen, to sit in your presence. And if you have something you want to say to me, say it. I'm ready to hear it. And look, let's not pretend, again, that any of this is going to go perfectly for you. You're a person, you're like, yep, silence and solitude, I'm going to do it. And then you sit down and you're like, okay, God, I'm ready to hear from you. And then your wife goes, are you asleep? Like, yeah. She's like, you were snoring. You know, like, like okay, those kinds of things happen. <laughs> now, again, maybe, maybe that was biographical. Um, <laughs> maybe that happened like three days ago. Um, but yeah, but to say, look, it's not going to go perfectly, but it's that getting on the bike <laughs> and riding, right? And you may fall off and scrape your knee, but you get back on and you keep going. Scripture. Again, like we're going to... Just to say, guys, this is really important. This is how we know who God, God reveals himself to us in scripture. And even there, when we sit in prayer time and in silence and solitude and all of that, it's measuring anything that we hear against what we know from God's word. To say like, is this actually, am I hearing from God? Or is this, am I just saying what I want? Am I, you know, is my brain just telling me what I want to hear? Or is, you know, or, or even there, is, is, is Satan? Or something, you know, spiritual, saying something to me that is not of God, right? It's being able to discern that. And the way we discern that is by knowing what the Bible says, right? Okay, it's important that we spend time in God's word. And these are all things that we see Jesus doing, right? Jesus could just quote scripture like that, you know, like, and, and he knew the Bible. Jesus spent time in silence and solitude. He spent 40 days in the desert, for goodness sake, you know, as he started his, his ministry. He went off onto the mountain to pray. Like, he spent time with his Father. And finally, we come to the rhythm of Sabbath. And in some ways, this might be the hardest rhythm for any of us to do. 
All right, and we're not going to argue about whether or not it's still a command in Scripture or not. Look, at the very basic level, it's just a good idea. We live in a world of constant busyness. So many of us now are working from home, which means you, we, we don't ever shut off. And our, and our businesses and our companies that we work for expect us to be constantly available. It's why they're having to draft legislation that says companies have to leave people alone from this time to this time because it's becoming so unhealthy. Email, again, on your phone, you can constantly check it. And then what if you, you get an email from work that says, hey, I need you to do this or hey, I need you to do that. Like I talk to people constantly up in the co-working space who are being abused by their work. They wouldn't say that. They'd be like, oh, I gotta work. But they're like, we're working basically seven days a week for their company. It's not healthy. God gave us this rhythm of Sabbath to say, you need to take a day and just trust in God's sustaining power. Take a day of rest and a day of worship, and to be intentional about it. And again, just to be biographical, like sometimes we do this well, sometimes we don't in our house. But man, I love it. But it takes work, because, you know, if you don't want to cook that day, then you got to make extra food the day before, right? I mean, I, I had to make extra pizza dough yesterday, or well, on Friday, because so then we would have pizza dough that's already cooked and ready to just be thrown into the oven today. I mean, I guess I didn't have to. We could have bought frozen pizza or something. But like, but you know what I mean? Like, it takes work. It takes thought to say like, okay. But you know what? When I get home and I don't have to cook anything and Alyssa doesn't have to cook anything and we can just put it in the oven, it's going to be nice. And we're going to get a nice pizza. Because <laughs> we had it last night and it was good. Right? And it's those times to say like, you know what? I'm not checking my email, I'm, I'm not doing any of that. I can focus on my kids and hanging out with them and being with them. I can sit down with a book that I wanna read and I can read it. I can take a nap. My kids don't understand that. <laughs> like, but, but I can take a nap, you know? And it's like, it's to say, that is actually spiritually healthy. Because you are a body. You are not just a brain on a stick. You are a human being. You are a body. You're a person. And we need to rest. All right. Guys, I knew this was going to go long. Luke even said on Wednesday, he, you know, he was like, he actually said to me, he was like, now I know this could go long. So, you know, like he, he like gave me like the, the leeway to say like, you know, I know there's a lot to say, but we're nearly there. Guys, all of this stuff is stuff that can easily become legalistic really easily, right? Where we can like look down our noses at people who uh, don't pray as much as I do. You know, or you don't take a Sabbath. <laughs> you know, like it can easily get that way. And the reality is too, none of us are going to be perfect at this. All of us are going to fail. And all of us coming back to the beginning of our sermon are going to be tempted to go back, and sometimes we're going to go back to that buffet and we're going to eat some really mediocre food. Even if we practice all of these really well, hopefully the more we do it, the more we become like Jesus and the more we know Jesus and are connected to him. But there's still going to be those times where each one of us goes back to that buffet. And this is why it's important to look at Jesus. Jesus is the true and better exile. 
He's the true and better remnant. He left his home and he left his father. He willingly was exiled in a human body, living among us as a stranger who is rejected and despised. And while here on earth, he still remained connected to his father. He proclaimed the kingdom of God all the while, everywhere he went, the kingdom of God was breaking in. Right? He loved, he served, he healed, he taught. Everywhere Jesus went, the kingdom of God was breaking in. And finally, Jesus suffered the ultimate exile. He was murdered. The ultimate exile of death. He was crucified to death, and in so doing, he received the ultimate exile that you and I deserve for our own rebellion, for our own sin. Right? Each one of us deserves exile away from God. But because of Jesus, we don't get what we deserve. Jesus was exiled. Jesus came, died, and was buried, suffering the ultimate exile away from the Father's presence. But death could not hold him. Jesus conquered the grave and defeated sin and death. And by his wounds, we are healed. And through his death and resurrection, we've been welcomed into relationship with God. And now we wait and hope for Jesus' final return. Where, complete, where the kingdom will be completely and fully accomplished. But in the meantime, we live as an exile. But we live as exiles in victory. Where we're empowered to live faithfully for Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We live faithfully in exile, awaiting the kingdom in its fullness. And when you and I fail, you talked about getting on a bike. We get back on the bike. And we keep moving towards Jesus. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. And we run towards him, seeking the prize. And I just feel like I want to end with this good news that Peter gives us in 1 Peter 3, 18. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. Jesus is the true and better exile who was perfect, who lived a perfect life on our behalf so that we would not have to suffer the exile away from Jesus, away from the Father, but instead could be welcomed home, as Peter says. We could be brought safely home to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, for Jesus. Thank you for sending your Son to be our rescuer so that we could be brought into your kingdom. 
And now as a part of your kingdom, God, in a way we live as exiles in this world that is still awaiting your final return. Return in your fullness where there will be no more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more tears, no more crying, but God, a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new Eden, where you're where we dwell as your people in your presence and fully the earth is your place. And so God, we look forward to that day. Help us to live for you, to live connected to Jesus. It's in his name we pray.